bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene. And we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Delaware County Historical Association, which is located in beautiful Delhi, New York. They are dedicated to promoting and preserving the history of Delaware County through research and teaching. And the Rochester Genealogical Society, founded in 1938 and located in Rochester, New York, is an all-volunteer organization dedicated to helping members improve their research skills and broaden their enjoyment of family history. And one more uh, quick thing before we begin. We've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. Okay. So now on to today's episode. Lloyd Buford Threlkeld was born in 1893. He was also known as the Whistler. He played guitar and sang. And his band, known as Whistler and his jug band, was one of the most notable jug bands of its time. Threlkeld was born in Eminence, Kentucky. But he moved to New York City in 1932 and lived in Harlem. In May of 1935, he was admitted to New York City's Bellevue Hospital with tuberculosis. He died in September of that year. He had a successful public career and a following. His music has been recorded and performed by jug bands around the world. Yet he died without recognition and without company, and he was buried along with so many others of similar status on Hart Island. In 2013, Buford was inducted into the Jug Band Hall of Fame. And joining us today to give us a, a sense of the history of this music and Americana music in general is Professor Douglas Frazier, 
his bio is fascinating. He's a showman, a musicologist, vocalist, and performer on tenor guitar and tenor banjo. He hails from three generations of performers and has personally been on stage since the age of three. And we're gonna, we're gonna get to the bottom of that in a minute. He's also the author of the book, Early Entertainment, The Evolution of Show Business in North America. And Professor Fraser has also toured with Blood, Sweat, and Tears and George Carlin and is currently the opening act for the Kingston Trail. And Professor Fraser, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Well, thank you very much for joining us. You know, as I was thinking about our conversation, uh, the first thing that I thought of is, uh, what is a musicologist? Can you explain that a little bit? A musicologist is a professor of musical history. Okay, and, yeah. is that, and do you teach that now uh, at one of the colleges or universities? I've never taken up residence in a college or university. I've taken my knowledge and combined it with my musical ability to take it live and work from stage to stage at uh, concerts and festivals and fairs. And I still perform in universities and colleges and schools. And I do an educational performance where I, I walk the audience through the history of North American music. Right. Your bio says that you've been on stage since the age of three. What pray tell does somebody do at the age of three when they're on stage? I was tap dancing. Tap, tap dancing. dancing. Yeah, started off doing that. My father, who was a, uh, a matinee crooner, his vaudeville partner was Danny Thomas, tutored me in instruments and singing and developed uh, interest and, and skills in that area. So Danny Thomas, who we know from television, <coughs> Danny Thomas? Wow. Yeah, he ended up with a Danny Thomas show. What was it like to be the opening act with George Carlin? What, what was he like to hang out with? Very intelligent, very intellectual, everything you'd imagine. I spent decades as an opening act for major performers, and, uh, and he was probably one of the most interesting uh, as far as just a casual conversation would have gone. Amazing. And also you toured with Blood, Sweat, and Tears? Yeah, and dozens and dozens of bands of that caliber. There were great times with them. Uh, very interesting band, and they knew everybody and probably partied on the highest level in the in the business. You probably can't tell us about that, right? Parties, I mean. Can I you? could tell you. I can tell you. About <laughs> tell me what parties, you can tell me. <laughs> but we'd we'd lose time on our subject matter here. Okay. We're veering. I, uh, perhaps um, the uh, jug band music, as I understand it. Uh, was something that came about, I guess, in the early 20th century. Uh, but you take it from there. You have a timeline of music that you discuss, I, I think beginning with ragtime, but kind of the history of how those various uh, genres led to the next one, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, as far as jug band music goes, it really... it. It got its foothold uh, in the early 1900s. The whole concept was being kicked around in the late 1800s, but by the 1900s it had, uh, it had taken a firm hold, and the idea and the inspiration from it spread. It was really Louisville where jug band music took a firm hold. It was street music at the time, uh, 
It was music that was performed by people that couldn't really afford to buy musical instruments, but felt that they had a musical talent and wouldn't be held back. Consequently, in, in lieu of being able to purchase an expensive instrument like a guitar or a, or a tuba, drums, they would make do with things they could find inexpensively. So drums were replaced by the washboard. There was a washboard under every sink. Everyone had one, uh, easy to transport, and uh, you could make a percussive sound with it. And in the mix, it, it carried very well. All by itself, it was a little on the lame side, but in the mix with the other instruments, it held its own. The tuba was very expensive. This was a time, Mike, when in order to, to purchase an instrument like that, you'd have to walk into a, a shop, say, I'd like a tuba. There wouldn't be one on a shelf. The man would look at you and say, come back in eight months, I'll make you one. And he'd make that one for you. Wow. So it was quite expensive. So instead of a tuba, they blew into a jug. Now, the jug was a was a win-win situation. It came completely filled with whiskey. That's right. Which which had to be emptied right. out. Right. And there's only one humane way to do that, and that's, that's right. to drink it. And uh, and then if the jug was worked out well and had a good good tonality, they blew into the jug without actually touching the edges of the jug with their mouth and they buzzed their lips like you do if you play a trumpet. And the sound going into the jug went into the jug and came back out the same place, the opening in the jug, and produced a low bass note. A good jug player could get, would have a two-octave range and would eventually be able to hit every note dead on the money. So in the mix, the jug sounded very much like a tuba. It became so popular that even the country western bands featured jug players. It became quite the novelty. They couldn't afford banjos, and they made their own banjos, and the back of the banjo would often be a metal pie tin. People would find discarded instruments and repair them or, or use the parts to create something new. And, of course, kazoos were always in there. Now, the kazoo was a, a mainstay in the jug band. Right. It originally started out in, in 1840, and it was called the membranophone. It got its first, the Kazuka got its first patent in 1883, and at that point it was renamed the Kazoo. In 1902, they changed the shape of the Kazoo to the submarine shape we know today, and it was 1916 before it went into mass production. And at that time, the Kazoo was really a popular instrument, and it was featured in many of the big bands. So you'd go and you'd hear Louis Armstrong, and he'd have a kazoo player standing on each side of him, playing with him. Dick Slavin was the concert kazooist in the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. There were kazoos everywhere. Now, was this still considered part of the jug band uh, music, or had it now begun to morph into something else? Jug band music started off on the street, and it became adopted as uh, popular music, and it moved into nightclubs, and it moved into the concert hall. The Kentucky Derby featured a jug band for the first 30 years of the Kentucky Derby. If you had gone onto an old steamboat on the Mississippi River or, or the Ohio River, uh, that would have been a jug band you were listening to right up until about 1917, which is when jazz was created and we got jazz bands. Mm -hmm. Now, in Louisville, these jug bands were playing music that was partially ragtime 
and was veering towards what would become jazz. So jazz was really created at that point. In Memphis, Tennessee, the jug bands had moved into Memphis, Tennessee, but they had different roots they were pulling from. And this is where the blues was created. And the blues was created by jug bands. So there's the roots of the blues. Fascinating. And uh, so in history, critics, music critics, who very often are not musicians themselves, when you read something about a music critic, you have to realize there is a line between music critic and music lover. Right. Um, They're not always the same. Critics don't mention jug bands because they don't feel that the public would have interest. They don't feel that jug bands glorious enough to, to be mentioned, but often jug bands are exactly where these big jazz giants got their start. So if we were to say who were in these jug bands, that's an interesting lineup there. Louis Armstrong, who did not pick up the trumpet and instantly step out of his house as one of the great trumpet players, had to learn the craft. And he was in Jimmy Bernard's Washboard Wizards, along with a guy named Johnny Dodds, uh, who was a clarinet player, a great, great clarinet player. The seven-gallon jug band had Clarence Williams in it. Now, Clarence had the Clarence, later had the Clarence Williams Washboard Five, which featured King Oliver, who was the greatest cornet and, and trumpet player. That's why he was called King at the time in New Orleans. And he was playing cornet in the band. Later, Clarence Williams developed the Clarence Williams Jug Band with Clarence on, on jug and Willie the Lion Smith on piano, Lonnie Johnson on guitar, and Albert Nichols on clarinet. Now, these are all monster jazz players that you know, years later got their recognition and, and worked their way up in the music scene. Uh, being in these jug bands was not a decision usually to increase wealth, although that was a possibility, but the bands played because it was crazy fun and uh, real joy to produce the art that, that is music. Now, uh, there was a group called the Mound City Blue Blowers. This was the first band to ever record a kazoo, and it was such a huge hit that everybody wanted to, to play in this band and it went through some great players, Eddie Condon, Jimmy Dorsey, Gene mm-hmm. Krupa, mm-hmm. Eddie Lang, Red McKenzie, Jack Teagarden, Frankie Trambular, Muggsy Spanner, Glenn Miller was in the band, and Dick Sliven, who I mentioned earlier was one of the great kazoo players. It was in the 1950s that we got a revival of jug band music. Now, there's still jug bands playing today, and w- what keeps them in the dark is the fact that nobody in a jug band recently has had a musical hit song. Right. And uh, that, that's a death knell. And so they stay in the dark, but they're out there. They're still playing. In the late 50s and 60s, there was a jug band revival. One in the United States, the Orange Blossom Jug 5, featured Dave Ronk. Then there was the Jim Queskin Jug Band, which got a lot of notoriety. And the Even Dozen Jug Band, which had John Sebastian in it. The Nitty Gritty Dirt Band started out as a jug band. Right. Now, in Europe, in the 50s, in Europe, they had a revival, and they called it skiffle music. And it was jug band music without the jug. Okay. Uh, now, in the United States, a band without the jug was called a spasm band. <laughs> there were all kinds of different types of crazy bands. The instrumentation in a jug band would be jug, washboard, gut bucket, now, gut bucket is a wash tub base. This is a, a regular wash tub turned upside down, 
and you put a hole in the bottom of the wash tub, put a string up through the hole, not the end so it doesn't come through, right. and you tie it to a broom handle and play that, that one string like it's an upright bass. You pull the broom handle back to raise the note, or you can fret it on the broom handle to raise the note. And a combination of the two is used, and that's called a gut bucket. They were very popular, and we found gut bucket nightclubs. So you'd have a jug washboard, the gut bucket, the kazoo, banjo, guitar, fiddle, mandolin, harmonica, a Jew's harp, and often a suitcase. Now, the suitcase, they would sit on a suitcase and kick the side of it with their foot, and that would be your bass drum. Right. And often play the top of the suitcase with brushes that you use on drums. A great example of this, if you want to see it being done, go on YouTube and look up the Mound City Blue Blowers. They're really a great act to look at. Very interesting. That would have been circa, uh, like, what, what uh, period of time? 30s. 1930s, okay. You know, back uh, at the turn of the century, there were no microphones. We didn't. We had microphones. I shouldn't say that. There were, there were microphones in the telephone uh, in the 1890s, but there wasn't a microphone and an amplifier and speakers that would produce enough volume to be used on stage. And so, well, that wasn't happening, and that didn't happen until 1930. Well, that wasn't happening. In order to perform on to an audience. Uh, you often would only perform to maybe 10 and 12 people, and more than that, they couldn't hear the singer. So in jug bands, they would often have a guitar, an acoustic guitar, but in working groups on stage, they almost never used the guitar because you couldn't hear it. And guitars in those days were much smaller, and uh, they were considered parlor instruments, uh, which means you could hear them at home in the living room. So if if you listen to a, an early country-western band, country music was played on banjo, fiddle, and kazoo. Those were the three main instrumentations. And that was the three main instrumentations for the blues. The blues didn't have guitar in the early days. And then every other instrument you could possibly add, if you could afford it, you'd throw it in, right? So there were hillbilly bands. Now, the hillbilly bands, this was Hollywood's contribution to jug band music. People think of jug band music and they think, oh, hillbilly bands. But no, they were really jazz. They were playing jazz and they were playing the blues. But somebody was making a movie in Hollywood, decided that since jug band music seemed to be popular, they'd put one in the movie. And the producer, having never seen a jug band, made the assumption that, well, if they're blowing into a jug, it must be a whiskey jug, so they must be hillbillies. Okay. So he called for a hillbilly band. Well, the jug bands all looked at each other and went, there isn't one. Uh, but they quickly put on overalls and, uh, and a straw hat and turned up for the audition. <laughs> That's right. And when they got the audition, the movie made hillbilly jug bands a thing. And so they went on taking gigs in that outfit. And Hollywood basically produced the image. So that's how that happened. There were juke bands. This is J-O-O-K. Okay. They actually predate the uh, the jug band era, and they were usually in a barrel house or a, or a juke joint. Those entertainment spots were usually found on plantations. We're, we're going way back at that point. The washboard band, washboard bands usually were, were blues bands. And when I say blues, I mean blues, not bluegrass. Bluegrass wasn't created until the 1940s. And of course, we had our we had our skiffle bands, uh, which were in in England. 
So let, let me tell you a little bit about that, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I should mention that the drum set was created by a washboard player. So, so much came from, from jug bands, and, and like I say, critics never, never give any value to, to jug bands, so you never see it. When a critic writes a book, first of all, they think to themselves, what's going to sell? Right. What does the, the reader want to see? Well, the, you have to sell the reader on something that he knows something about or he'll have no interest. So they write about Louis Armstrong. They write about Jimmy Dorsey. They, they write about somebody that the reader knows about. They never take it back to, to jug bands, and, and which I find to be a real shame. Now, there was a guy named Baby Dodds, and uh, he had a brother named Johnny Dodds, who was a famous clarinet player. Baby Dodds was an infamous washboard player. He got a gig once. Now, if you had a dance band coming in to play a room in those days, the drums, since the drum set hadn't been invented, to have drums, you'd bring in three guys. And these were the guys out of a marching band. A, ma- a guy standing there playing the bass drum, a guy playing the snare drum, and a guy playing a side drum. Baby Dodds wanted all the money, so he took the gig, and he arrived early. He put a big nail in the wooden stage floor and put the bass drum up against the nail so that it wouldn't slide across the floor. And he Uh sat behind it, and he kicked it with his foot, and that's why they call it a a kick drum. (laughs) Now, a friend of his was in the audience, a young man named Von Ludwig, and he came up to Baby Dodds and said, you know I could make, I could invent a, a pedal that you could step on, and it would hit that bass drum exactly in the same spot every time, and the sound would always be consistent. And that was the Speed King pedal, and Ludwig Drums was started up on the power <coughs> of that. Uh, uh, Professor, uh, Professor Fraser, in the, in the two minutes or so we have left, I wanted you mm-hmm. to talk a little bit about your book early entertainment, the evolution of show business in North America. And I sense that there was more than just music as a part of this evolution. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. What I cover there is everything we did to entertain ourselves from 1840 to 1940. So it covers all the forms of music that was established during that time and starts us right off at the early colonists and covers the musical era. It covers uh, the creation of of roller skates and bicycling, silent movies, television, burlesque and vaudeville, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, the history behind all of that, circuses and zoos and bare-knuckle prize fighting, absolutely (laughs) everything that was done, form of entertainment, is all in there. And since I have a family that that's been in show business for quite a long time. My grandmother was with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show her whole life. That's incredible. Um, it, there's lots of family photos in it and lots of inside information that you'd never get elsewhere. It makes it interesting. It's, it's on Amazon. You can, you can get it in a... And you have your own website, I take it, where we could go to to see what you're up to next? Yes, and I've got a jug band featured on it, and the website is uh, thegenuinejugband.com. So T H E G E N U I N E J U G B A N D dot com. Well, uh, this discussion has been uh, thrilling, actually, <laughs> totally fascinating. And and as we say goodbye to you, right at the end, we're going to play about one minute of a very rare 1932 audio clip. 
that contains Buford Threlkeld and his band playing their iconic song, Foldin' Bed. And uh, Professor Fraser, thank you very much for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Appreciate Bye. it. Went downtown to have a little fun, both of separation. Tiny girls. Held it home, they told his chef, not so doggone hard, got scared of himself. Come on out of that home. This is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself or simply wish to contact any team members, for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. (laughs) 